Today's topic is one that I have to admit, I didn't know a heck of a lot about myself and certainly one I didn't learn anything about in my schooling, but one that affects between three and eight million women in the U.S. I'm talking about interstitial cystitis. Interstitial cystitis, or IC, also called bladder pain syndrome, is a chronic condition that affects more women than men. Since we don't know what causes IC, it can be difficult to find treatments that work. And the IC diet is highly restrictive and not at all individualized. So today I'm talking to one of the only two dietitians in North America who not only specializes in IC, but has also lived with it herself all her life about how to actually identify which foods are acting as triggers for you. Callie Kreicher is a registered dietitian who helps people with IC minimize their symptoms through identifying their unique triggers. She's an IC warrior herself and has suffered from the condition since she was young, which has driven her desire to help others suffering from the same condition. Callie's program, Road to Remission, combines an elimination diet, education, and a private support community to help people with IC manage their symptoms. Let's get started. Welcome to Hormonally Yours with the Hormone Dietitian. If you're a busy woman struggling with hormonal issues like PCOS, fertility struggles, and other hormone imbalances, and you feel like you're the boss of your life in every area but your hormones, then you're in the right place. I'm your host, Melissa Groves Azero, integrative women's health dietitian, coffee lover, cat lady, all black wearing, former New York City advertising exec turned professional period fairy. It's my mission to be the no BS hormone nutrition education resource for smart women struggling with hormone imbalances so you can have regular symptom-free periods and optimize your fertility naturally. I'm here to share real, actionable, science-based tips you can use to get real results without cutting out foods, spending hours in the gym or meal prepping, and without losing sleep, because we're all about balance here at The Hormone Dietitian, and I am so glad you're here. Let's get started. Hi, Kelly. Welcome. I'm so glad you're here talking to me today. Why don't you tell the audience a little bit about who you are and what you do? Yes. Thank you so much for having me. My name is Callie Kreicher. I am a registered dietitian that specializes in a condition called interstitial cystitis. It's a mouthful. So I'll start off by kind of defining what that is. It also goes by the term painful bladder syndrome or bladder pain syndrome. We have a couple different names for it, but we, we will call it IC just for you know, shortened purposes. So the reason it is a chronic bladder condition, we don't have a known cause or a known cure for it right now. And I can kind of dive into what the treatment looks like and what the symptoms look like. But the reason I got into this specific condition is that I've lived with IC my whole life. That is not typical for the majority of people who have IC. So I have been through every stage of life so far living with this condition. 
And I have to say it's very isolating because most people have never heard of it before, right? It's definitely not something people talk about. So I'm also helping empower people living with IC to be more open about it, be more comfortable talking about it. I have my own podcast called ICU where we just talk about different things and just normalize it. Yeah. So I know, you know, as you say on your website, you're one of only two dietitians who specializes in this area. So that's amazing. Yes. And the other one is nearing retirement. So it really is an area of dietetics where there is a need because diet plays a very large role in most people's symptoms. Yeah. Similarly, I mean, I I don't remember learning a lot, if anything, about PCOS during our dietetics education, but this is something I had never heard of until after I was done with school and already practicing. Just for reference, around what percent of people have this condition? So we really don't have a whole lot of statistics to go off of, but the one that seems to be the most legit, I think it came from the CDC, is four to eight million women and one to three million men in the United States. Now those are really large ranges. And I think there's a lot of people who go undiagnosed, especially men go misdiagnosed. It can kind of mimic a prostate issue. So there's there's a lot of, of issues kind of with the diagnosis process. And the American Urologic Association just this past week announced updates to their recommendations on diagnosing it and, and treating it. So that's really a huge win for us. Yeah, I just saw that post on your page today that they're recommending referral to a registered dietitian. So I'm so pumped about it. You have no idea. <laughs> yeah, huge win. You know, when people acknowledge, you know, similarly the PCOS expert guidelines, you know, they kind of conclude with it takes a village, you know. So you need all sorts of healthcare practitioners on your team. So what are some of the symptoms that would be associated with IC? Is it really, is pain the primary one? So based on those guidelines I was just talking about, they said that pain is now the hallmark sign of interstitial cystitis. So that would be pain in the bladder or the pelvic area. But a lot of people commonly have frequency. So they pee a lot, urgency. So the urge to pee or urinate, whatever we want to call it. Burning or pain with urination, that is a symptom that I suffer from. And then pain with sex, those are typically the most common. There are people who have just one of those symptoms like me, or people can have all of them. It can kind of, to simplify it, it mimics a UTI without having bacteria show up on a urinalysis. Yeah, that makes sense. I was wondering if there would be some overlap between people who are prone to UTIs and IC. Yeah, there there does seem to be an overlap. There are people who are just prone to UTIs, which they would call that chronic UTIs. There are people who strictly just have IC. And there are certain treatment methods that can be used for both of them. There's a medication. I don't know if anyone who's listening has ever had a UTI mm-hmm. and they give you this pill that turns macrobid. Macrobid. Well, macrobid. the, the oh, pain reliever. 
it's, the one that turns your pee like bright orange, orange. that one. Yeah. yeah. So that helps a lot of people with IC. And it's just, I remember when I had a UTI when I was in high school, they gave that to me. And I was like, this is awesome. <laughs> oh my God. You're t- you will totally relate to this story being a dietitian. I've never actually had a UTI. I feel very fortunate in that regard. The one time I was peeing red. And it was, it was a couple of days after a GYN appointment. And I was like, something's wrong with me. They, maybe they like nicked something when they were in there. Something, something's bad. You and ate so, meat, didn't you? I did. <laughs> I knew you would know the conclusion of that story. And so I went in and peed in a cup and they were all just kind of like, wow, well, clearly something's wrong with you. So we're just going to give you the antibiotic. Wow. And yeah. Then I, the next time. I ate beets. I realized what was actually happening. Yeah. What a story. Yeah. <laughs> with, you know, little 22 year old Melissa, freshly graduated from college, cooking on my own. I was so proud. I made like a ginger beet soup and uh, got a dose of antibiotics for it. <laughs> wow. Oh my gosh. What a story. <laughs> yeah. So, A lot of the symptoms that you mentioned actually can overlap with a lot of other conditions. So I can imagine that the diagnosis process is not super straightforward or super clear. You probably have to rule out a lot of other things to get to that diagnosis. What does it look like to, you know, pursue a diagnosis or get diagnosed with IC? Well, it can be pretty difficult. IC is a diagnosis of exclusion. So we have to exclude all other potential causes. It really, and and I believe what I read in the updated recommendations is that a cystoscopy, so a, a scope of the bladder can be used in patients who they believe have what we call Hunter's lesions, which are just these visible lesions on the bladder that are seen in about 10% of people with IC. So it can be used for those patients, but if IC is suspected and everything else is ruled out, a cystoscopy is not necessarily warranted just because it can be very traumatic. You have to get a catheter put in, which for a lot of us is extremely painful. And a lot of the time it's done when you're awake in the office, which is just like horrific. I remember my experience. It was, it was very, very painful. I was crying. She didn't really acknowledge me crying. So that was a whole other, you know, there's a lot of medical gaslighting that goes into this. There are doctors who will do a cystoscopy. And if your bladder looks completely healthy, they're like, oh, you don't have IC. And that's a really big misconception. You can still have IC and not have anything show up on your cystoscopy. So, you know, it's that's why it's so difficult to get a diagnosis. Some people just don't get a diagnosis and they go through life kind of dealing with it. So it it is definitely a struggle. And it's probably similar in, in the PCOS and the endometriosis world where there's a lot of medical gaslighting and some people will make you feel like it's all in your head when it really isn't. And what you're feeling is an actual medical condition. Yeah, I was actually comparing it to some of the experiences that I've had, I have to have an endometrial biopsy in office annually just to check on, you know, some abnormal cells that were found a while back. And it's 
completely mind blowing to me that they go in there and basically rip out uterine tissue. You're bleeding, you know, they're, they're pulling out tissue and they're making you bleed with no pain medication or no anxiety medication or anything. And there is no way in hell you could get anywhere near a man's parts without massive medications to get there. You know, it's just, I mean, I'm trying to, you know, remember, but I think it's so similar to other issues in women's health. I mean, I think maybe I might've gotten a numbing spray once when they were doing some cervical stuff, but like in Mm -hmm. general, they're just like, ah, whatever. And like, to be honest, I think for most of that stuff, we're so used to dealing with periods and all of the gaslighting that we have been dealing with our whole lives that it's like, okay, well, I guess this is just what we do, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. We just suck it up and we, we muscle through it. Yeah. I imagine there's a lot of, you know, with pelvic floor dysfunction that can happen, particularly after pregnancy. Again, some of those symptoms can overlap what you were talking about. You know, I, I imagine it must be really difficult to not just get written off as like, oh, well, you just popped out a, a nine pound baby. Of course, of course you're having urgency or of course you're having leakage, you know? Right. And I think that a lot of people, you know, we all go in thinking, oh, well, these are medical professionals. They know what they're talking about. So we put that trust in them. And then if you get, if you have the gaslighting and all of that, it kind of, it's a really crappy feeling. And I think what I, if I see somebody going through that, or I see on a Facebook support group, like somebody is going through a situation like that, it's important to point out, you know, you you have to listen to your body. You know, your body the best. If something doesn't feel right, it most likely is not. And you need to keep pushing for more testing for, you know, whatever you think you need and be your own advocate. As much as that sucks, it's like, you got to do what you got to do. Oh yeah. You have to stand up for yourself because nobody else is going to, especially in the conventional medical system, you know? So let's say someone gets a diagnosis of IC. What are some of the conventional treatments that might be recommended? So I'll start off with the least invasive treatment methods. First would be just educating yourself on the bladder, what it's supposed to do, what normal bladder function looks like, and just familiarizing yourself with what interstitial cystitis is. Another thing that is really important and is a very big trigger for people is stress. So managing that stress, easier said than done, I know, but that's a really big piece of the puzzle for a lot of us. And then the third thing would be diet. So we have what we call the IC diet. And there's a big misconception in the community that this diet should be followed forever. And with it being a restrictive diet, that is not what is supposed to happen. So let me just give you the down low on this diet. So back in 2007, there was a study done at Long Island University where they sent 300 or so questionnaires out to people with IC in the mail, it's, you know, snail mail back in the day. And it was a questionnaire asking what each person thought their bladder was sensitive to. So it was foods, beverages, supplements, things like that. They got about 105-ish questionnaires back. And based on that 
data. That's how they came up with this IC diet. And there are two different types of the diet or format. So there's one that has two columns with the most bothersome items and the least bothersome items. So things that you might find on the most bothersome item list would be alcohol, caffeine, chocolate, tomatoes, citrus, soy, MSG, artificial sweeteners. I always say it's everything that is fun in life. (laughs) We're supposed to stay away from. And then, you know, the least bothersome foods would be things that are more plain. And then we have a three column list, which would be, you could view it as like a stoplight sort of situation where the green or the bladder safe column is, you know, you can kind of go crazy with those items. We have the yellow on the stoplight, which would be the try it list, which is like, it could go either way. And then we have a caution list, which would be the red on the stoplight, which would be similar to those most bothersome items that I referred to earlier. So that all came about after that study. And then over the years, it kind of got morphed into this monster, essentially, that people develop a lot of food fear after being handed this diet list. So that's something that I see a lot of in the IC community. And I help people work through because when it comes down to it, most people with IC aren't sensitive to everything on that caution list. It's usually just like three or four things. And it's very, everyone's triggers are unique to them. And so how you learn those triggers is through an elimination diet. So Mm -hmm. now I can kind of go into that if you want me to, if your listeners are already familiar, we can kind of go to the next topic. Yeah, no, I mean, first of all, I can see why it would be problematic to prescribe a diet for everyone with this condition when you said there are four to eight million people and this these lists were based on the triggers of 105 people. And the math isn't mathing there, right? And it's not something that can be studied really in research trial. There are other factors like stress, hormones, allergies that come into play. You can't isolate diet alone. Yeah. We've talked a little bit just for context. We have talked a little bit about the FODMAP, low FODMAP diet, for example. And I see a lot of parallels with the way this diet is because you're really supposed to follow it under the guidance of a registered dietitian. The most restrictive part of it is very short, 10 to 14 days. And the most important part is when you're adding back foods and testing your own triggers. So I assume it's pretty similar with how you would approach figuring out what someone's triggers actually are. Yeah, exactly. I recommend two to four weeks of the elimination phase. And then the testing phase can last, you know, anywhere from a few weeks to a few months based on how many items a person wants to test. Yeah. So what are some of the more common triggers that you see for people in your practice? I would say alcohol. I would say lemon. Mm. Um, It's pretty, pretty brutal on a lot of people. If you think about it, you know, Okay. Let me back up and kind of take you through, you know, the theory on what's happening in the bladder. So our bladders have this mucosal layer called the gag layer. That's just an abbreviation, G-A-G. And 
in IC, it's theorized that this layer has, you know, holes in it. You can kind of oversimplify it as, and your urine essentially is your body's waste product. So your kidneys filter your blood and the waste goes out the body through the urine and the bladder. So if the mucosal layer is protecting that bladder wall and there's holes in it, those waste products or those toxins can get through and they can be super irritating. Like if you think about pouring lemon juice on an open cut on your finger or something like that. That's kind of why things that are very acidic or even on the other end of the pH scale, very alkaline, that's why it can be super bothersome for us. We don't really have solid evidence that that's what's going on, but that's like, you know, you can kind of deduce that's what's happening. I would say those items would be alcohol, the citrus, like lemon juices. People do struggle a lot with tomato-based products. And then I'm trying to think, it's extremely variable, I have to say, you know, and it can, triggers can change over time. So for example, back in college, when my symptoms were at their worst, I couldn't have like almost anything on that most bothersome list. Like I couldn't have coffee, but now every day I can drink coffee because I'm in a much better place. I would like to think that my bladder wall is a lot less inflamed and, you know, I don't overdo it. I know my triggers and I don't overdo it on them. So that's kind of the process of what or why each person needs to learn their own unique triggers. Yeah. So that was going to be a follow-up question is, is it possible, you know, similar to how we can heal the gut lining or the stomach lining, you know, for lowering inflammation and, you know, maybe there are some mucilaginous herbs we can use, you know, so it, it is possible to heal the wall so that then you're better able to tolerate some of those triggers. I mean, we would like to think that. I, I don't think we have any direct evidence supporting that, but yeah, there are different supplements or herbs that can be taken. Like aloe vera is really great. There's a freeze-dried version of it that a company called Desert Harvest, they are the most popular that people normally go for. And I think they recommend taking it over like three months. And that is hypothesized to repair that gag layer. Same thing with marshmallow root. Mm-hmm. So that one is is really awesome for just helping calm everything down, soothe everything and and kind of there's there's a lot of other ones, but those would be the two most common. And then things like caffeine, well coffee is very acidic, but caffeine in itself is a stimulant, so is that why that's irritating? Yeah. Coffee is a double whammy. So you have the caffeine and you have the acid. There are some brands that do like a low acid version. And then there's one that is acid free. And a lot of people do do well with that just because it doesn't have acid and it doesn't have caffeine, at least in their decaf. But yeah, the caffeine typically causes issues for people with frequency because of the, the diuretic. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't have bladder issues at all. And I know for a fact that coffee (laughs) increases frequency and urgency for sure. Remind me, because this isn't something I spend a lot of time on. I'm trying to think back to our, our medical nutrition therapy classes. 
What pH is urine typically? Is it more acid or basic or is it like neutral? I think it's pretty neutral. Okay. So we're trying to, you know, short of, of people following the keto diet where they're aiming to be in an, a keto acidosis state. So they're in a very acid state that you can test on your urine. But that leads me to, to believe that, that keto would be one of the worst things that you could possibly yeah. do with IC. Yeah, no, I don't recommend that at all. Okay, I Googled it and it's anywhere from 4.6 to 8.0. Okay. <laughs> so there are people in the IC world that like to actually like use the, the urine pH strips and test that and keep a log of what their symptoms are. And it seems that if it goes too far in either direction, that's when the symptoms do occur. Yeah, really, really interesting. I'm just thinking about all of the things now that could affect urine pH. You know, I'm not not even talking about this like alkaline waters or people that people think are doing something in their body. Oh, alkaline water is huge in the IC community. I don't notice a difference with it, but there are people who like rave about it and think that that's like their saving grace, which fantastic if it is. But for a lot of people, it makes their urine too alkaline. And then of course, symptoms. Yeah, I think getting, you know, simply getting off of municipal water supply and all of the things that come in that like chlorine and all of those things. So instantly replacing that with something else is going to have an effect probably. there. So before we get back to the rest of the episode, I just wanted to pop in real quick and tell you about a new workshop I've put together called PCOS Meal Prep Made Easy. If you're like most folks I hear from, you're confused and overwhelmed by all the conflicting info out there about what to actually eat with PCOS. And you may feel like you don't even know where to start. In this hour-long workshop, I break down what foods you want to include for PCOS and what you might want to consider avoiding or minimizing. And I share my simple three-step formula for planning meals with PCOS. The best part is it does not involve spending hours in the kitchen. Yes, you can absolutely incorporate this formula while cooking at home, but what's really great is that you can apply it no matter where you are in a restaurant, getting takeout, at a family meal, or even while traveling. Head over to thehormonedietitian.com forward slash easy PCOS, all one word, to sign up now. Signing up is your first step to finally understanding how to eat to manage PCOS. All right, cool. I'll see you there. Let's get back to the episode. You know, you really approach things from a similar way that I approach things with PCOS and hormone balances and fertility issues, which is we have to take an individual approach. So do most people end up needing to restrict a lot of things or follow a super restrictive diet? Or is it much more moderate? Like, you know, we found these two to three things that really are triggers for me. So once they determine their triggers through the elimination diet, you know, they can eat pretty much anything. I find that through the elimination diet, 
even if you're sensitive to something, you can kind of learn your limits. And if there's like, if it's your absolute favorite food and you're out at a party and you really want to have it and you know, you can have a small amount. I think that is really important to help you feel normal and help improve quality of life. And there is actually a supplement called pre-leaf that helps neutralize the acid in food and, and drinks that people can take to kind of help them indulge on those things. I wouldn't recommend, you know, doing that with every meal, every single day and replacing an elimination diet. No, I think that should be used once you learn your triggers. And if you need to go out with friends and have a drink on the weekend once in a while, I think that's awesome that there's a product out there that you can do that. Yeah, I was going to ask if it was dose dependent, if the amount that you're eating matters sometimes. It's very similar to, I'm allergic to casein, so I can't eat cheese, but mm-hmm. very, very, very occasionally I will eat cheese and take a digestive enzyme with it just to yeah. prevent. Um, I think the company recommends just taking like two tablets with a food or a beverage per meal. I know there's people who take more than that. You know, the company, I think they recently got recognition as like a, not a supplement, but like a medical, I don't really know what they would call it. A medical food kind of thing. Medical food, yes, that. And so, you know, that's great. But I I always warn people, you know, if you have issues with kidney stones or you have high blood pressure, you really want to run that by your doctor first because you don't want to mess with those things. Yeah, did you say leaf, pre-leaf, like L-E-A-F? Like relief with a P. Oh, okay, cool. Definitely yeah. worth worth looking into for those occasional indulgences. Doesn't make up for doing the process and finding your own triggers. Yes, exactly. So you mentioned stress already, which I feel like, you know, pretty much all things go back to gut health or stress. Are there other triggers for IC that aren't related to diet? I love that you asked me this question because I'm actually doing a webinar on that topic in two weeks. So your listeners can get a little preview of that. So yes, there are lots of non-diet triggers. So stress is the biggest one. I'm trying to think of, there's no particular order, but tight clothing mm-hmm. can, can really aggravate, especially if you have pelvic floor dysfunction. For me, extreme temperatures, play a role. So if it's super, super hot, I don't know what the mechanism is, but you know, really uncomfortable that will trigger me hormones. There are people who at like two days a month at the same time, every month will flare. So that does play a big role. Allergies is another big one. So a lot of people go on antihistamines and that helps so many people. So those would be the most common that I can think of off the top of my head. Yeah. Have you been able to identify a particular time in a person's menstrual cycle when they're more likely to flare? I'm trying to figure out which, which hormones would cause that. And honestly, this is hormones are a topic that I'm like not confident in whatsoever. I think that's originally why I reached out to you. I was like, Hey, I need more education on this. Like let's connect. But There are, I want to say during ovulation. I would say, you know, when someone's going to experience symptoms that are cyclical, the 
you know, kind of two areas where they would are just before, just after ovulation or the week before their period starts. Cause those are, those are the times of the biggest shifts in hormones. And usually it's, it's not the hormone levels themselves. It's the, the change from one level to another. That's what triggers things like migraines and, you know, insomnia and digestive symptom issues. Those are the two main areas of the cycle where it's like, things are happening, things are changing, you know? Yeah. And it's a really big struggle for these people because there isn't a whole lot of treatment options for this. There aren't, you know, that many doctors who are comfortable kind of dealing with that. So I, I know that I know people who know exactly when they're going to flare each month and they'll kind of plan things around that. They'll wear their comfy clothes. They'll make sure they're drinking enough water. They will, I don't know, not eat their, their dietary triggers that day. Like it's, it's something you can plan around. It's just, I don't think we've found that one solution for that. Yeah. That's exactly what I recommend too, is, you know, learning how to track your cycle so that the symptoms don't cause as much anxiety. It's just like, oh yeah, that's just this. Here it is again this month. You know, I know what this is. I know how to deal with this. But if you don't know what's going on and you're not tracking your cycles, then it can come as a surprise every month. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's interesting because different triggers will cause different symptoms during a flare. So, you know, for me, if I have a diet, flare, I will notice the next day. I like my very first pee in the morning will be like, Oh, the worst. It's like peeing fire. If I have a hormone flare, it's kind of like a a low mild burn that's consistent the entire day. So I think that's so interesting. Yeah. I mean, there are so many, so many hormonal changes going on. You know, I see it in really all areas of the body. It can affect everything, which is why women weren't even included in studies until relatively recently, because it's just so much of a variable. Yeah. Oh, that's a shame. So are there lifestyle changes that can help? I mean, I I always hate telling people like you have to focus on stress, like it's your job, but the bottom line is it's kind of true, right? Yeah. I think it is one of the first things that should be addressed. It's not always the easiest thing. I think that's actually like one of the most difficult ways to manage the condition. You have to really dig through some past traumas or emotions you never dealt with. And I think that can be really difficult for so many of us. So, you know, anyone who does decide to kind of tackle that, I give them props Other things that people could do is making sure they always have water with them because the more concentrated your urine is, the more dehydrated you are, that can cause symptoms. So making sure that you stay hydrated. There are on the flip side of that, people who love to or need to stay dehydrated essentially because that's where they have the least amount of symptoms. So extremely variable in that aspect. I always recommend, you know, light exercise, nothing crazy because we do tend to hold a lot of our tension in whatever we're doing in our pelvic floor, which can essentially cause a flare. 
And then, yeah, just kind of getting that diet piece into place. Oh, the other one I didn't mention was anything with a fragrance. So like detergents, soaps, things like that can cause a lot of irritation. So, you know, going scentless in all aspects of life is usually helpful. And in all honesty, that's what's best for that area anyway. Nobody should be putting fragrances or using highly fragranced soaps or highly fragranced menstrual products in that area anyway. Yeah, I was thinking about when you were talking about hydration, how that might actually be scary to some people if you, you know, if you associate urinating with pain, then you're going to want to restrict fluid so you don't have to do it as often. That would be my my initial reaction, I'm sure. Right. And I think it's the people where frequency and urgency are their issue or their main issue. Those are the people who like to restrict. And for people like me with pain and burning, we do better with staying super hydrated. So I guess it just depends person to person what they have going on. But it can get really stressful when traveling. So if you're in a car, if you're in a plane, there's a lot of anxiety that surrounds, you know, traveling like that, just knowing, you know, where the bathroom is, are people judging me for going five times during this airplane ride? Like there's a lot. And then of course that stress throws you into that cycle. It's, it's just not ideal. And the other, a couple of weeks ago, I was very fortunate enough to go on a private plane to kind of see, I know it was like my boyfriend's dad knows a guy, whatever. Wow. Um, it was really cool, but it was a tiny plane. It had six seats, no bathroom, two hours and 45 minutes flight time. So that in my brain, I was like, if, if I were on this airplane three or four years ago, I would have had to pee in a bag, which is what my boyfriend actually had to do because he chugged a water bottle before we got on. But luckily, you know, I have things managed. I was able to hold it the whole time, but I have to admit it was a little bit stressful. Yeah. I was thinking of that astronaut who wore the diaper uh, on her drive across country, but, you know, for sure in the last couple of years with restrictions on even what's open, you know, there was a time when we were making a road trip and none of the rest stops were open in our state anymore. And so it was like, you know, purposely restricting fluid or, you know, one day I had a photo shoot that was going to be a, you know, three hour photo shoot, but I was going to be out and about in town. And it was like, okay, I need to cut off fluids at a certain hour so that I'm not going to have to find somewhere when nothing's open, you know? Yeah, no, that was a big struggle for our community. And I'm sure like the IBS, Crohn's, all of that, you know, I'm sure they also struggled and that is awful. There is a lot of, there are some like disability accommodations that can be put into play. I actually just interviewed a civil rights and disability attorney and she kind of explained to me, you know, you do have the right to use a public bathroom. And she kind of talked to me all about that, which was great. I, I feel like, you know, there, there aren't enough resources educating the general population about things like this. So I, I think that was really helpful. 
Yeah, I definitely, you know, hadn't thought of that, but it makes sense that, you know, you would have rights based on your diagnosis for sure. Yeah. Yeah. You have the right to accommodations, you know, in that aspect, but also maybe at work, if you have to take more bathroom breaks than your coworkers, if you have to leave to go to appointments every once in a while, things like that. Also, I, back when I was in high school, like I had to have a water bottle with me at all times. So that could be another example of it, but there is a lot of pushback with employers about these accommodations. So another area that we have to advocate for ourselves in. Yeah. I mean, I, we've definitely heard stories of, you know, people on the Amazon floor and things like that, not being allowed to use the bathroom. Can't imagine, you know, when you have a physical medical need that is uncomfortable and painful, it's even worse. You're not allowed to, you know, take basic biological breaks. Yeah, that is the United States. We really work ourselves into the ground. (laughs) Yeah, I can't, can't even imagine. So are there medications that are typically prescribed for IC? Yes. So there are a few. So there's one that is an antidepressant called amitriptyline. That one's pretty commonly prescribed. There is, oh, I mentioned the antihistamines before. So like hydroxyzine, there's one called cimetidine. There is a medication that was helping a lot of people called Elmeron. But in the past few years, there have been a lot of lawsuits stemming from people getting retinal, retina damage, eye eye damage. So that was our only FDA approved medication strictly for IC. And now we have these lawsuits. So insurance companies aren't covering it anymore. And, you know, I, I was pursuing that a couple months ago and my insurance company wasn't going to cover it. It was going to be like a thousand dollars a month, which is absurd But I do have to say there are a lot of people who are still on it and still do find benefit in that. So another area where it's it's a very individualized thing. There is immunosuppressants, which would be like one of the last things somebody could try because there is a theory that some of the IC cases are autoimmune related. So we, we do have these theories, we have these subtypes because we are all so different that there actually was a doctor who kind of came out with his, he called them IC subtypes, I guess. I don't really know what he Mm. exactly called it, but he kind of classified patients into five different subtypes or phenotypes based on their symptoms. And it can be helpful for determining what path of treatment should be taken because not everything works for everybody. Yeah. It's really interesting just hearing the categories of medications that are currently being used because it's really all over the place. It's like, is this maybe serotonin related? Is it histamine related? Is it immune related? You had mentioned something before that I wanted to follow up on too, because you said you're sort of an unusual case in that you've always had this. Is there a time in life when women are more likely to be diagnosed with IC? I don't know what the current vibe is with that. You know, a lot of doctors do say, oh, you're too young to have that. It's usually older women who get that. So I think there is this like stereotype, I guess you could call it, that people or women who are older get this, which 
We also know that men get it. So that's, you know, already wrong. And there are, I've run into, you know, a decent amount of people who are like me and that they've had it since they were very young or they were born with it. And there is a theory that there's a genetic component for people like me, or, you know, there's a lot of people who say, oh, my mom has it. My aunt has it. It it runs in my family. So, you know, I, I don't know anyone in my family, but there is a, a woman in the IC community who says like, even if your relatives have nervous system issues, like anxiety or IBS, it's like that can also kind of be passed down and can manifest as IC. Oh, interesting. It's a lot of theories and not a lot of evidence to back it up. Yeah. What about supplements? Are there supplements? You you had mentioned a few that might be helpful. Aloe, marshmallow, that prelief in certain occasions. Um, Are there other supplements like similar to the ones that would be used for UTI? I think I've seen you post around some of those before as well. Yeah. So the number one thing, if somebody has IC and and they know that, and don't, don't drink cranberry juice, don't take cranberry pills. (laughs) Like the biggest red flag. If a doctor tells you to do that, you need to run away from that doctor. I mean, it's like pure acid. It's like you were saying before, you're just going to burn more holes in your. Exactly. So that's a major difference between the two conditions, but there's a supplement called D-manos that is derived from cranberries that actually does help a lot of people. I do think that the people it helps are are more prone to the UTIs, but you know, there are people who aren't that are helped by that. People struggling with frequency could benefit from pumpkin seed oil. There's there's a bunch of supplements and there's also supplements that it's it's more of a combination of different things. You know, you could do like anything that promotes anti-inflammatory, you know, whatever, like the fish oils, things like that are really great. And yeah, that's of course all I can think of on the top of my head right now. I know there's a ton of others that I'm forgetting. But I'm sure it's similar to any condition where, you know, there's not prescribed list of supplements you should take just because you have IC and especially with so many different subcategories or potential different causes, you know, the, the treatment might be different from person to person. So, you know, definitely a dietitian is someone who can help you sort out supplements and which ones might be smart for you or safe for you or right for you. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And you know, something I'm really trying to do over the next few years is educate other RDs about IC because, you know, like you said, we didn't learn about IC or endometriosis or PCOS in college. Like most dietitians aren't going to know about IC and it is a very complex condition. And even the diet is like very, very complex. So a lot of patients do express frustration when they when they actually do get a visit with a dietitian covered by their insurance, which is like a huge win in itself. But there can be a lot of frustration where the patient has to teach the dietitian, you know, kind of more about the the condition. So that's a big reason why I'm really excited to be on this podcast, first of all, and just to 
educate other professionals about this condition, because I think the more we talk about it, the more awareness we're going to get. And the more awareness we're going to get, the more research that will be done. And hopefully we find a cure or a way to better manage, you know, all types of IC. Yeah, honestly, the only reason I know about it is because I was working for a very brief time out of the GYN's office and she had in her office also a pelvic floor therapist who specialized in IC. And she was really looking for a dietitian who could, you know, support her patients with the diet aspect of things. Yeah. And, you know, obviously there's, there's tons of amazing RDs out there and I'm sure there's a lot that do know about IC. It's just, you know, the fact that there's only two of us that specialize only in this condition, it's like mind blowing to me. Yeah. Hang tight after the episode. Cause I'm going to snag you for an educational <laughs> opportunity okay. um, for sure. So what are some, you know, maybe mistakes that people with IC might be making or some myths that people buy into that they, you know, besides you have to follow this eliminate, you know, this really restrictive diet for life? Yeah, that would be probably the biggest one for me is, yeah, you don't have to eat this restrictive diet for the rest of your life. Another one would be the cranberry thing. Another, ooh, that's a good question you know, working in women's health, I would say one thing is to, to not write it off as normal sort of what you had said before. If you know something is wrong, keep digging and keep fighting for an answer because you don't have to live with it. Like, okay. There's a myth, I guess you could say that if people say avoid all acidic things, it's Mm -hmm. like blanket statements like that aren't necessarily true because we know the, like, if you consume lemon, it's acidic going in, but your body metabolizes it into base or alkaline. So acid in doesn't always mean acid out. I would also highlight the value in going to pelvic floor physical therapy. I think that is a really underrated thing or treatment method to do. And I actually am very guilty of that. When my doctor suggested it years ago, I was like, what the heck is that? Like, there's no way that's going to help me. So I just like (laughs) didn't make an appointment, but the past like eight years, I've been seeing various physical therapists. And I think that they're a really helpful tool for the majority of us. I think the pelvic floor is very complex and at least getting evaluated by a pelvic floor physical therapist is worth it. I know. I feel like that's kind of new too. Like maybe 10 years ago, I had never even heard of it. And now it's becoming more commonplace to get a referral to a a pelvic floor PT, especially after pregnancy, you know, at sort of the first sign that there's issues of any sort. And I love that for us. Like I love that, that trends towards more knowledge around the pelvic floor. I remember when one of my closest girlfriends went after her pregnancy and, you know, I was, I was a dancer. I was trained as a dancer. So posture and, you know, body alignment and core is like a really huge part of all of that. But, you know, she was just so excited to show me like what neutral spine looks like. And I was like, oh, Oh my gosh. I just thought of another one. Kegels Mm, or IC are a no-go. If a PT tells you to do Kegels and you have IC, chances are they don't really know what they're doing with IC. 
The guidelines I was telling you about that just got updated, they even came out and said, like, don't do Kegels for IC. So that is supported by the evidence that we have. Yeah, we're we're probably going to be having vagina rehab doctor on again oh, soon. Cool. She's awesome. She's amazing. She's been on already, but I want her to come on and talk about pelvic floor dysfunction because yeah, it was mind blowing to me that you know things being tight down there aren't necessarily a positive. <laughs> right. Exactly. And and for people with IC that just makes all of our symptoms so much worse. It's like, if your muscles are tight, they're, they're putting pressure on your bladder. And that could be a reason why you have frequency, or if it's too tight, it can cause the nerves to, to fire those pain signals. So that kind of is a simplified version of what's going on in, in our bladders, at least. Yeah, there's a lot of factors. So diet, lifestyle, structural, you know, muscles, all of that ties into it. Yes, I said it was very complex. So you're you're getting a very thorough education here. <laughs> yeah, I, I so appreciate it. So what would be one thing that you would want people with IC or maybe even people wondering if they might possibly have this to take away from the episode? If somebody just gets diagnosed with IC, it's going to be overwhelming, but know that it's not a death sentence. This condition, even though we don't have a cure, it is very manageable. You can live a normal life with this condition. So don't, I mean, going through all of those phases of mourning, you know, mourning, whatever your life Anger, was. Anger, yeah, all of it. <laughs> it's valid and know that you're allowed time to do that, but there will be light at the end of the tunnel. There are so many resources out there that you can utilize to, to manage this condition and just like live your best life. I think that's so helpful. Just that, that little ray of hope that, that somewhere, somewhere in your future, there are days when you're actually going to have no symptoms, you know, and you might still have flares if, you know, maybe you, you ate something that was a trigger for you, or maybe you're stressed to the max, but it is possible to live mm -hmm. an essentially normal life. So I think that's really great to give the listeners hope there. So tell the audience where they can find you and how they can work with you. So I am very active on Instagram and TikTok. I'm at Callie K Nutrition. I am, oh, my podcast, I see you. So I see space Y-O-U. I come out with episodes weekly interviewing different experts in the field and people living with IC. So that's really fun. I'm also, I have a program called Road to Remission that combines an elimination diet, a education course, and a private support community. That is super awesome. So if somebody wanted to learn more about that, they could go to my website, calliknutrition.com, or they could reach out to me on any of the apps I just talked about. Yeah, I imagine having a support community is really helpful, but especially one that, you know, everyone's kind of grounded in speaking the same language and not say, drinking the Kool-Aid about the restrictive diets that you have to be following. Um, I know that's one of the best parts of my program as well as, you know, having the community of support. I will also be linking to, Kelly has a free masterclass. So I will put the link for that 
in the show notes so you can go straight there and watch it. Thank you so much for coming on. I have definitely learned a lot and I'm sure my audience will too. So thank you. Yes, thank you for having me. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening to this episode of Hormonally Yours with the Hormone Dietitian. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you could open up the podcast app you're probably using to listen to this episode right now and leave a quick rating or review. Your reviews help this podcast get seen by more women who could benefit from the information I share here. Stay tuned for our next episode. And in the meantime, stay balanced. Stay balanced.